Yeah, the people seized him, didn't they? And they beat him. They were going to kill him. Uh, the Romans stepped in, and they uh, they kind of saved him. But you know, they didn't really know who he was and what was going on. So they got him. And what we saw last at the very end of last week, the very end of twenty-two. Um, the Roman, we're going to find out this week, his name is Lysias. Uh, the Roman commander in Jerusalem there, the, of the garrison in Jerusalem, he, uh, he needs to find out what Paul, what, what all this is about. Because what's going to happen now, now that he knows that Paul's a Roman citizen, what's going to happen is he's going to have to give an account for chaining up this Roman citizen for no reason. And that was a big that was a big no no in the in the middle of uh, in the Roman Empire. Roman citizens that was a, a highly sought after uh, privilege. But anyway, uh, so what he's going to do here, he's going to he he's going to bring them down to the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Council, and he wants the Jewish Council to. Uh, basically have like a hearing and to tell him to kind of figure out what that Paul has done. I need to know the crimes that he's committed. I need to know what he's done. Uh, there, that way I can tell the, you know, if he's going to be executed or if he's going to be punished or imprisoned or whatever, uh, we'll know, we'll know exactly what he's done. And what we're going to see, I'm going to try to do the whole chapter. So we may move kind of quick. What we're going to see in this chapter is that Paul is protected. He's protected by God's providence. Y'all know what providence is? Providence is when... Um, providence is what we talk about when God is moving in the events that happen, the day-to-day -day events, you know? Like... Uh, Providence, something providential happened. Not necessarily a miracle, but it's it's providential. Like you, um, you know, uh, I don't know you run into somebody at the store and you ain't seen them in years and it just so happens that you were talking to them and then God uses that encounter to, you know, whatever. That's that's providential. It's it's God's providence. He's he's kind of for lack of a better way to put it, orchestrating the the events that that go on. Does that make sense? Y'all have examples of that? Do I need to keep on explaining? You know what providence is? Providence is where God's just kind of moving uh, throughout the stuff. You know, you run into somebody, you get the job that you know you wanted, and it just everything just falls into place, or you know whatever. Even when it, it's not good, it's a it seems like something bad happened, and we know God's still working God's providence. Well, Paul's going to be protected by God's providence here. But you need to make sure you understand, Paul has also been stoned and beaten and jailed and imprisoned, and, and he's going to end up dying for his witness for Christ. So just saying you're protected by providence doesn't mean that nothing bad is ever going to happen. What it means is that until God's purpose is done, you don't have to worry about, you don't have to worry about anything that comes into your life uh, as long as, as long as you understand that God is, is using. Doesn't mean that you're going to jump for joy when something terrible or tragic happens or something like that. We all know we're going to go through grief and all that kind of stuff. So we're not talking about something crazy like that, but we're talking about, we understand that God is in control. Does that make sense? Y'all with me? So God is in control even right here. And he's going to use some really weird things in this chapter to make sure that uh, we understand that he's in control. So 
Paul trusts his will. He's brought before the Sanhedrin. He's brought before the Jewish council. And uh, I kind of alluded to this this morning in the sermon, but uh, in his first three verses, Paul's going to lose his stuff a little bit, you know, which kind of pleases me a little bit. So I, there, I know there's hope for me. It says, Paul, Paul, what's happening now, Paul is in the, in the, the room where the San, Sanhedrin was like the 70 men council of the Jews. They, they decided the cases and law and all those kind of things. They weren't powerful enough to command execution because they were still under Roman rule, but they kind of decided the Jewish law, the Jewish matters, religious things and stuff like that. So Paul goes in and the Roman Lysias has brought him in and uh, Paul gets ready. You know, he gets ready to make a defense like he has done so many times in Acts all ready. And he starts off, you know, thinking this is another another defense that he's going to make. He says, and Paul earnestly beholding the council said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. He's he's beginning his, you know, I see that I see him kind of like a lawyer beginning his opening speech. You know, he's uh, getting his thing together and he's about to give them a big, long testimony about what happened. He's about ready to do that, do the deal. And right at this moment, as he starts speaking, it says, and the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth, to slap him in the mouth, strike him on the mouth. And, and then Paul kind of loses it. Verse three says, then Paul said unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou, for sittest thou uh, to judge me after the law and command me to be smitten contrary to the law. He says... He says, God's going to judge you, you whitewashed wall, because you're breaking the law. You think you're supposed to be judging me by the law, but you're breaking the law by having me struck. Uh, they weren't allowed to be struck before their trial in Jewish law. And so he says, and they that stood by said, revilest thou God's high priest? He said, you can't talk that way to God's high priest. And Paul kind of composes himself. He kind of he realizes what, what just happened. And he says... I wist not, which means I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Now, there's a couple questions here. Paul kind of exploded, you know, when somebody smacked him in the mouth. But I think that there's a question of whether he did actually get smacked in the mouth. Because it doesn't say he got smacked in the mouth. It just says he was ordered to be smacked in the mouth. So there's some people that kind of debate whether he actually got hit. I think it's pretty obvious that he got hit because, I mean, I don't think you would explode like that unless you got hit. Make sense? Y'all awake? Y'all with me? Okay. And so he explodes. He calls him a whitewashed wall. That saying comes from Exodus um, not Exodus, Ezekiel chapter 13, where a whitewashed wall is one that looks good on the outside. It's all, you know, painted up and pretty, but it's going to fall over because it doesn't have anything on the inside. Uh, it, it could also refer to Jesus saying that the Pharisees were whitewashed tombs. Um, and so basically he insults him and he says, basically calls him a hypocrite. He says, you're, you're thinking you're going to judge me against the law, but here you are breaking the law himself. And then they say, you know, this is the high priest you talk to do. And Paul kind of composes himself and says, basically says, look, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that was a high priest. Why do you think Paul changed his tune when, first of all, yeah. Why, though? I mean, really, if you think about it, he was kind of right. 
Hold on, she just asked you, did he know that that was the high priest? Oh, I thought you said because he was the high priest. No, no did he know that was the high priest? No. That is the, that's another question that's talked about. Because why didn't he know that he was the high priest? Because usually the high priest is decked out and, you know, it's like if the Pope walked by... In, you were in Vatican City and the Pope walked by. You wouldn't have no question like, look at that dude, light bulb hat. He's the Pope. <laughs> you know, why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he know? Now, there's a lot of people that try to answer that question. A lot of people try to answer the question. And uh, some people say that Paul's eyesight was bad and he didn't understand. Uh, there's some people that say. He's kind of giving him a backhanded insult saying that somebody, I didn't know that somebody that would give this kind of order would be the high priest, you know, like that would be an, an insult. Or there, there's some that say, and I think this is kind of plausible. I mean, I don't know for sure, and we don't know, but some people say that this was not an actual meeting of the Sanhedrin. They were all standing around, and they, Lysias just brought him in. And so he just heard a voice in the background say, you know, all these guys, there's 70 of them. So he just heard, hears a voice saying, strike that man in the mouth and whap he gets struck and then Paul just explodes not knowing that it was actually the high priest that had said strike the guy in the mouth and so I think that one's probably the most plausible but we don't know for sure uh, the 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 realization is that the truth is that he he didn't realize that it was the high priest and and really why would he apologize anyway I mean whether it was a high priest or not, it was right. Why do you think? Why do you think that he would apologize in the midst of all this? To show humility. Yeah, to show humility. To show that um, he didn't want to give offense. He didn't want to give a. He didn't want them. He was breaking the law. The law says, "Do not revile." It's a. Um, I, I wrote it down, but I don't have it. Uh, there's a, a law in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. Don't speak. Don't speak evil of the ruler of God's people. Uh, and so he was actually breaking the law. He didn't want to give them any more ammunition. He didn't want to offend them. He didn't want to return evil for evil. He didn't want to say, well, this guy struck me. Therefore, I'm going to go ahead and revile him. You know, he did it first. And so he he deserves it. You know, he wasn't going to he wasn't going to play the game where you return evil for evil. He was going to make sure they understood, you know, hey, look. And plus, I think that he realized I'm not getting no fair trial here. You know, I'm not getting no, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to listen to my case here. They're not going to do any of that stuff. They, they want me, they want me dead. They want me dead. And there's question as to why he was struck and, and all those kind of things. But the reality is, I think what you see here, we're going to talk about God's providence in a minute. But what you see here is Paul is, uh, Paul kind of loses it. There's some people that say he didn't lose it, but I don't think you can. I mean, it's clear from the text. He just kind of, blah. You know, he just kind of goes off in a, how dare you, you whitewashed, whatever, you know. He just kind of, he gets struck in the mouth and he just comes back guns blazing. And then he realizes, he realizes what just happened. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that that was the high priest. The scripture tells me that I can't speak to God, the rule of God's people that way. Even though he knew that this was an evil man, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't, uh, he was uh, not actually of Christ or anything like that. He knew, he knew that he had done wrong. And so in order to keep from giving offense, he kind of changes his tactic, doesn't he? He kind of takes it with, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. He kind of... He kind of takes it with, uh, 
What am I looking for? He protects his testimony and he kind of just calms himself. And you know what? God's going to take care of all this. I don't have to I don't have to revile you. I don't have to fight with you. I don't have to yell at you. You know, his sinful flesh just kind of blurted out there and, and, and he calms himself. He, he gets ready and and uh, we're going to see that God himself is going to going to protect him in his uh, in his providence. Any questions about all that? I know we skipped over a lot of points that could be made. Do you think with Paul's background, you know, yes, he is a changed person, but yes, he is also human. Do you think with his background against the Jewish people when he was struck, you know, light bulb, you know, it just, he felt, you know, like the how dare you use, because we do that. You know, even though we have been changed by Christ, when we feel wronged, especially by people that we've tried to help and, you know, try to show the light to, we lash out. Oh yeah, no. I think that's the kind of the point that he uh, he he lashed out. He lashed out, and he was right to do so. If you ask me, I mean that's just my opinion. I can't. He was he was right to do so, but he wasn't justified before God to do so. Does that make sense? Like somebody wrongs me, you know, I owe him. You know, but. Really, it's not it's not justified before God for me to repay evil for evil. It's not justified before God for me to uh, get back at him, you know. And that's that's hard for me because I, I I will get you back. You know what I mean? That was a joke. Ain't none of y'all laughing. Y'all wake. Everybody have their coffee. So anyway, Paul he calms himself. He says, "Okay, sorry, didn't realize it was the high priest that that spoke that." And then. I don't know how to explain this the best way, but he kind of plays. He looks around. He sees that there are Pharisees and there are Sadducees that make up the council. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we're going to see this in a minute, they had theological differences. And there's nothing more that people love to argue about than their theological differences. And so what he does, and there's a lot of debate about this, whether he did it on purpose or whether he just was making a summary statement but I think he did it on purpose he realizes that he did, he's not going to get a fair trial here he's not going to even get a good hearing here I mean they struck him before he even began his introduction so what he does is he kind of plays on their division he plays on their differences verse 6 it says when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, of the hope of, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. He said, the reason I'm on trial here is because I believe in the hope of resurrection. I believe in the resurrection. Now, we know in his mind, he's talking about the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead at the end of all those that are in Christ. Um, but... The Pharisees, it'll, it'll tell us right here. It says, And when he said, when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So what he did was he, he just kind of played against their their theological yeah, their theological arguments. He said, look, I'm here for because of the resurrection. And then all of a sudden he knows the Pharisees believe in resurrection. The reason Sadducees didn't was because they only accepted the first five books of Moses. Accepted Genesis, Exodus, 
Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the only scriptures they accepted. And so they believed wrongly that those five books didn't teach the resurrection. But Jesus, if you read Matthew chapter 22, he, he proves that even in Genesis we see the resurrection of the dead. So that's a, that's a whole other lesson. But the Pharisees took the whole, what's called the Tanakh, which is the whole Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. They believed the whole thing. Writings, prophets, the law. They believed it all. So they believed the resurrection of the dead. They believed angels and spirits. They believed the supernatural realm, you know, God ministering and all that kind of stuff. And so they, they assumed, they wouldn't have agreed with Paul that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus appeared to him. Remember, Paul gave his testimony yesterday on the steps of Antonia, right? So they know, they know what he's going to say, that... You know, a bright light shone on me in the Damascus Road and Jesus came and said, why are you persecuting me? They pretty much know what he's going to say. And the Pharisees say, you know what? If this guy saw something, if an angel or somebody came and talked to him, I mean, what's the big deal about that? And so Paul basically starts a riot in the council. Yesterday, there was a riot in the outer temple and the Romans came and got him. The Roman brings him to the council today to try to figure all this out. And Paul says one sentence and all of a sudden there's a riot in the in there. And so pretty much everywhere he goes, there's like turmoil. There's there's all this going on. And so uh, what happens is Lysias, the 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 Roman, he, he starts fearing for Paul's life. Now, this is a very violent argument that's going on. It says when there arose such a great dissension, the chief captain, that's this Roman, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle, which is the barracks, which is where they were. Okay, and so what you got there in the first scene, you got Paul standing before this council. He says... He's about to give his great oratory testimony and he realizes that that's not going to happen. They're not interested. They're not interested in hearing what he has to say. They smack him in the mouth. He loses his stuff there for just a minute. He composes himself. He realizes, you know what, I got to get out of here. And he plays on their theological division to just cause them to start arguing. They're arguing amongst themselves and all of a sudden Paul just kind of fades in the background and the Romans see that all this is going crazy so they come down and get Paul and bring him back. Um, the centerpiece of this whole chapter is going to be verse 11. Uh, verse 11 is what ties these two stories in this chapter together. It says, And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer. Don't be afraid, Paul's way saying. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. So that is going to be Paul's promise. Can you imagine how you think he was feeling? Okay, he got beat, bloody, almost killed the day before in the temple complex. And then the Romans came and took him. They almost beat him. And they found out he's a Roman citizen, so they stopped. And now all of a sudden they took him to the Jewish council just to figure out what was going on, figure out what the charges was. And it was clear that they were out for blood. They wanted him dead and he wasn't going to get a fair hearing. So he, a mob ensues in there and he's taken back to the Roman. How, how do you think Paul was feeling at this time? He's probably weary. What else? How would you be feeling? It's not a trick question. <clears throat> yeah, like what's the point of all this? Huh? Yeah, discouraged. 
He was discouraged. It's everywhere I go. It's a riot. Everywhere I go, people want to kill me. I'm probably, you know, where are you, God? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm doing this over and over and over again. Where are you? Yeah, definitely, probably. So, and you kind of get a sense of how he was feeling because God comes to him and says, be of good cheer. Don't be afraid. Take courage is what it literally says. Take courage, which means Paul was probably afraid. He was probably worried. He was probably... You know, this is not going to turn out good. And God basically gives him, it's sort of a promise, but he says, you will testify just as you have done in Jerusalem. You're going to testify in Rome. So how does that encourage Paul, do you think? Well, he knows that God's not going to, God hasn't and will not turn his back. That's right. And God has, is basically promising right there that you're going to get through this. Because you're not in Rome yet. You're in Caesarea. He's in, well, he's in, he's in Jerusalem right now. But at the end of this, at the end of, uh, is it this chapter? See, I've already done 24. Yeah, at the end of this chapter, he's going to go to Caesarea. And so he's going to show great courage in Caesarea because he's not in Rome. God promised you're going to go to Rome and you're going to testify. And it's almost like, you've you got to kind of read between the lines right here, but God is is approving of his ministry in Jerusalem. He's basically saying, just as you have testified in Jerusalem, you're going to testify in Rome. What do you think the significance in 11 where it says the Lord stood by him? I don't know. Well, I think the Lord came to him in a in a in a vision or a you know not a vision dream you know was there or yeah I mean doesn't have to be a vision but he just Paul saw the Lord. I think your point sounds like is that it feels like by the text that he was physically there standing by him. Oh, and he very well could have been. That's what I'm saying. Right, right, yeah. So the Lord came kind of... Uh, personally. Yeah, per well, personally, but he stood beside him. And he was like, you know, you're standing with somebody, shoulder to shoulder. You know, I got your back kind of thing, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't have no problem with that. And I say a dream vision. It doesn't mean it wasn't real. It could have been, you know, he saw, he saw Christ on the road to Damascus. So I'm just saying God came to him in one form or another, one way or another, and gave him this promise. Take courage. You're going to testify in Rome in the same way that you testified in Jerusalem, which kind of gives approval to what he's been doing. Doesn't that kind of, wouldn't that kind of... Encourage you? You know, I, it seems bad. Everything's going wrong. But God, he's telling me that I'm doing good here. And I'm going to do the same thing I did here. I'm going to do in Rome. That's kind of encouragement. But it's also a warning too, isn't it? Because I, I don't know if you, you may not know about Roman Empire or whatever, but I mean, you're going into the heart of you're going into the heart of the power structure of the world. I mean, you're going right to the emperor was I mean, it was it was no joke. It was they had Christians to lie. Yeah, that's right. That's right. By the time Paul got to Rome, Nero was the emperor and he was a nutball extraordinaire. I mean, he was, he was insane, insane. And uh, so it was a promise that you're going to make it to Rome, but it was also, when you make it to Rome, you understand, I mean, you're probably going to give your life. You're probably going to give your life when you get there. And so it's kind of a, 
I mean, it's kind of an encouragement, but it's also kind of a, you know, you're going you're going right down to the deepest, darkest part of whatever uh, of the world. You're going to testify to me there. Well, I knew he was going to have to have extra encouragement because that's like throwing us into the you know, people who. Yeah, you go into the to the depths of wickedness. Yeah, you're going to Baghdad to preach. You know, absolutely, absolutely. And so, the middle of this verse eleven kind of holds these two stories together. The first one's Paul's kind of not so much testimony in the Sanhedrin, where basically it just turns into a riot and he gets taken out. The second thing we're going to see in the rest of this chapter is the plot to kill him. Now, the Jews basically come and they say, you know what? We're not going to be able to get him. We're not going to be able to get him by trial or all those things. So what we're going to do is we're just going to band together and we're going to assassinate him. We're going to assassinate him. And look how God works these events to, uh, to deliver Paul from this. It says, verse 12, And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Literally, it says, they anathematized themselves. Uh, um, to pronounce an anathema upon you, uh, a curse upon you, means basically, may God curse me if I don't kill Paul. That's basically what they were saying. They were calling down God's curse upon themselves if they didn't complete their mission. You know, and so they 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 promised uh, they pledged not to eat or drink until Paul was dead, which means they were going to have to do it in a day or two. Uh, they're going to have to get it done pretty quick. So they were expecting to get it to get it done. And there were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. So it just wasn't a couple dudes in the back alley. It was 40 guys, at least 40 guys that bound themselves together, said, look, we're, we're going to kill this guy before he gets out of Jerusalem. And so what they did was they came to the chief priests in verse 14 and elders and said, we have bound ourselves uh, under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. They're involving the chief. These are the elders of the Sanhedrin that had just heard Paul's testimony the, the day before. Uh, they're involving them. He says, this is their plan. Verse 15. Now, therefore, you at the council signify to the chief captain, that's the Roman that's in charge of the garrison, that he bring Paul down unto you tomorrow as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. Tell him you got some more questions for Paul. You want him to bring him down. And uh, uh, more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. And on the way, when he, you know, they know they can't go get him in the fortress where the Roman garrison is. I mean, that's just stupid. Suicide. So what they're going to do, they, they're going to get Paul to be brought down to the council again and on the way maybe they're hiding in the crowd somewhere maybe they, I don't know, they got it figured out they're going to jump him and they're going to kill him on, on the way and they've involved the leaders of the Jews and everybody into this plot now and it says uh, ready to kill him and look at what just happens to happen, look at what a coincidence this is, verse 16 when Paul's sister's son heard they're lying in wait he went and entered into the castle and told Paul, who is Paul's sister's son I mean it's Paul's nephew do you know who it is I don't know who it is either this is the only times ever mentioned in scripture. I didn't even know Paul had a sister. No idea. This is the only didn't know Paul's family was in Jerusalem. Didn't know I didn't know none of that. Why do you think 
just all of a sudden, out of the blue, just happened to happen that Paul not only had a sister, but her sister's nephew was there in Jerusalem, and it just happened that he was there and heard the plot and just happened to realize that they were going to kill Paul. Think that's a coincidence? No, it's God's providence. Yeah, it's it's God's providence because what happens is really crazy. I mean, he this guy, uh, we don't know how that he heard about it. We don't know. We don't really know anything at all about what goes on. But God promised that Paul would go to Rome and through the events of this whether he was a young man or a boy, I mean, the, the word used for him is kind of a young person, maybe teens, early 20s. Uh, but we know that he is going, Paul is going to be delivered from Jerusalem without dying because of what happens right here. And so God promised, God promised that he would get out of this city alive. He promised that he would go to Rome and he would uh, testify before Caesar. So we have that information and Paul has that information. God appeared to him. But if we look at look at what happened here, you might be tempted to say, well, it was just lucky. It was just lucky that Paul that Paul had a nephew and he was in the area and he happened to hear about the plot. But verse 11 gives us the context of what all of this stuff that's about to happen uh, is for. It's God using all of this. Um, think about all the decisions that have to be made. This young boy is going to go to Paul. He's going to tell Paul. We probably won't read it just because we run out of time. He's going to tell Paul about what's, what they've got planned. Paul's going to send him to the Roman captain, the Roman commander of the guard, and he's going to tell him. And then the Roman commander is going to he's going to protect Paul by assembling 470 soldiers. Horsemen, uh, infantry, all that, and they're going to escort Paul out of town to Caesarea to see the governor, Felix. And so you might look at that, and if we were just reading the text and verse 11 wasn't in this chapter, you might think, well, that's pretty dang lucky. Pretty lucky that guy was around. Pretty lucky he heard. Pretty lucky that the Roman, you know, cared enough or was probably frightened enough. He didn't want Paul to get hurt. But verse 11 cements between those two stories, letting us know that God is the one that's using all this. He has promised. Could could anything happen to Paul where he accidentally or purposefully, based on the evil plots of the Jews or the Romans, have died there in Jerusalem on that day? I don't think so. No, there's no way. If it was possible, God would be a liar. God said, you're going to Rome. You're going to Rome and you're going to testify in Rome. And so when we see all these things, you know, we think of God delivering you. You know, you think of, I don't know, a big bright light coming and lifting you off of the trouble and bringing you to a safe meadow somewhere. You think of miracles and supernatural deal, but God delivered Paul out of this plot of death the good old fashioned way, just providence. He delivered him because there just happened to be the right guy at the right time listening, just happened to be there, just happened to know Paul and to be able to have access to Paul. Not anybody could just wander up to the deal. You know, only your family, stuff like that could go and see you in the barracks if you were under arrest. Uh, it just happened to be this guy that was at the right place at the right time in order to let everybody know that this plot was going on. That's the hand of God working in the midst of Paul's life. Y'all see that? Does it seem like you met any resistance? Huh? That's also the world's version of coincidence. Yes, yes. You see it as providence. 
Right. Absolutely. What? There, he met no resistance. I mean, you know, if you imagine walking into the castle surrounded by Roman <coughs> soldiers, there's there's no mention of any resistance. He went straight to Paul within this castle. So That's right. That's right. He went straight to him. And <clears throat> let me just read what happened. Um, we already know the chief captain told him not to say anything. Uh, he told him the Jews have agreed to kill Paul and they want you to bring him down. Uh, he tells him, please don't do it because they're, they're, uh, they're looking to kill him. In verse 22 it says, So the chief captain then let the young man depart, this Paul's nephew, and charged him, Seest thou tell no man, and thou hast showed these things to me. Don't tell anybody about what you've just told me. And the man called unto him two, and he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen three score and ten. Four hundred and seventy people, and spearmen two hundred. So you got three score and ten, seventy, two hundred spearmen, two hundred soldiers. So he's got four hundred and seventy soldiers that are going to escort Paul out. And provide them beasts and horses, and they, that they may set Paul on and uh, bring him safe to Felix, the governor. And then he wrote a letter to the governor. So Paul is kind of getting the VIP treatment, really. I mean, this is this is this is an escort that you would get for an important important person. Really, he's just doing it. What would happen if Paul got killed under Lysias's watch under this Roman? Yeah. He, the Roman get killed. Paul's a Roman citizen. You let a bunch of religious nut jobs kill a Roman citizen under your watch, you did. That's what Rome would think anyway. So I love how both the Roman, and we're going to see next week, the Jews that go to Felix to bring charges against Paul, they change the story. They kind of change it to make them, themselves look better. It, just, it, it happened all the way back in Bible times. Still going to happen today. It says, he wrote a letter after this manner. Claudius Lysias, that's the Roman's name, unto the most excellent governor Felix sendeth greetings. This man, talking about Paul, was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. Is that true? No. <laughs> Did he know he was a Roman? He didn't know he was a Roman until after he was about to get beaten. Did they took him? Did he come and rescue him? No, he came and put him in chains. When he he all he wanted was quiet. The mob was beating him, about to kill him, and the first thing he did is chain Paul up. So he's making himself look good. Like um, I'm sending this guy to you, and uh, you know I've done everything the way it's supposed to be done. It, it's really it really tickles me anyway. It says, and I would have known, and, and when I would have known the cause, wherefore they accuse him, I brought him forth into their council, uh, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or bonds. What he's saying to Felix is, I can't find nothing that this guy has done that's worthy for the death penalty. Romans had to administer the death penalty. The Jews weren't allowed to do so. And he says, and when it was told me how the Jews laid wait for the man, they planned to kill him, I sent Straightforward, straightway to thee, and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. See you. Farewell. He says, I sent him to you. It's your problem now. Felix was the governor of the province, the whole thing. So he was over all the Romans that were in Judea, Jerusalem. Uh, it was the Syrian province. And so he was, Caesarea was kind of the capital city of the province. Y'all see what I'm saying? So Lysias sent him to the governor of the of the province. And so he, he, he sends him the reason why he's sending him and all those kind of things. And then 
In verse 31 through 35, this is where it ends. It says, Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris, which was uh, the, the name of the name of the region. And on the morrow they left the horsemen to go with him and return to the castle, uh, who, when they came to Caesarea, delivered the epistle, the letter to the governor, presented Paul before him. When the governor had read his letter, he asked what province, province he was. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, who, why is... What, what city is Paul from? The province of Cilicia from what city in Cilicia? Tarsus. I will hear thee, and said he, when thine accusers come, and he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. And so what you see here is Paul's final departure from Jerusalem. He's never going to see the city again. As far as we know, he's never going to see the city again. He's leaving Jerusalem for the last time under Roman escort. Uh, and he from the rest from here to the rest of the book of Acts, he will never be out of custody. He's going to be in Roman custody for as far as we know, the rest of his life. There's some people that talk about he, he got out. You know, Acts is going to end with Paul waiting to see the emperor. You know, and there's some specula speculation about when he write, wrote Second Timothy, he had gotten out and then was back in Roman custody. But as far as the book of Acts is concerned, he's never going to leave Roman custody. He's there for good. And he's going to spend a lot of time there. But he's going to use that time to be a witness for the gospel, even in the midst of all that he's got going on. So the point of the chapter, I think, is summed up in verse 11. God brought Paul out through regular old ordinary means. Wasn't no miracle, no stars fell, no earthquake blew the jail open. None of that stuff happened right here. God promised you're going to get out, you're going to go to Rome, and all these kind of things just happened to work together, all falling, all the ducks fell right in a row just in the perfect way so that Paul could be escorted with a huge escort of Roman soldiers out of the place where the people wanted him dead and put him in custody, in Felix's custody, the governor, uh, in Herod's, in Herod's uh, jail, his judgment hall. So now... He is, he's still in danger, but he's not in danger from the Jews' assassination anymore. They can't get to him. They can't get to him. The next chapter, they're going to come and we're going to see his trial before Felix. And then uh, we'll talk about that as we get to it. But God has delivered him just through regular, every ordinary, everyday means. Understand? So the judgment hall is actually prison. Yes, uh, he's kept in prison, but it's not... It's not like a... Yeah. Somebody huh? Is it like a holding sale? Well, he's going to have he's going to be in Felix's prison for 2 years. But he's going to be given freedoms. People are going to be able to come and go. We'll see that in the next chapter. It's not like dark dungeon shackled to the wall prison. It's more like house arrest. You know, it's more like you're here, anything you need, I'll bring it to you, but you can't go nowhere. Your friends, your family, they can come see you. They can bring you minister. In those days, the prisons didn't feed you. They didn't clothe you. They didn't give you nothing to drink. If any of that was going to happen, you better have some people on the outside bring it to you. And so they're going to, uh, he's going to be allowed visitors and all that kind of stuff. So it was more kind of like house arrest. Although when you think house arrest, you're sitting in there watching TV. He was in prison, but he was granted some freedoms and it wasn't. It wasn't what we normally think of as in a dungeon prison. Make sense? He will be in a dungeon prison before it's over, but not yet. Any questions? All right.
Let's go. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you've given us. Help us to help us to remember. Help us to remember, God, that you are working all things according to the counsel of your will. Even when we don't see, even when we don't see miraculous things and, and earthquakes and all the things that would come and deliver us, God, you are still working behind the scenes. You are still moving and your uh, your 